Hello and welcome to From Paper to Podium, the new podcast from Science in Sport. I'm Charlie Webster and I'm joined by my co-host, Professor James Morton. James and I get stuck into an area of sports and nutrition in every episode. We get insights from an athlete and an expert to ensure that we're getting first-hand experience and the latest scientific insights. Science in Sport is the world's leading endurance nutrition brand and have created this podcast to help you beat your personal best by learning from the very best in the world of sport. Now, carbohydrates have had some bad press over the years, and that's exactly why it's the topic of choice today. We've invited one of the world's leading cyclists, Theo Gagenhart, to chat about how he fuels for his races, and Professor Louise Burke, who has extensively studied carbohydrates and is a world-leading expert. She's going to talk to us about her research, as well as nutritional strategies such as carbo-loading and the reoccurring debate of should athletes be high-carb or high-fat, and are carbs bad? James, there's a lot of carb controversy out there, a lot of C's going on there, isn't there? Why is that? Maybe that's a good place to start before we speak to Teo. Yeah, absolutely, Charlie. I think if there's one area of sport nutrition that really splits people, it seems to be carbohydrate. To some people, carbohydrate's your best friend. To others, it's the evil enemy. Um, what we want to do in today's episode is try and clear up those myths. And I'm, I'm super excited about this episode. I've spent 20 years of my career studying carbohydrate. And I'm really glad to bring on the likes of Teo and Louise to hear from the athlete side of the version of events. And of course, one of the world leading experts in this area. Yeah, this really is your bag. I'm not going to ask you anything else because I think we should get straight in and then start to debunk these things around carbohydrates. So we're going to speak to Teo Gagenhart first. Teo is a cyclist for the Ineos Grenadiers and he's the winner of one of cycling's toughest races, the Giro d'Italia. His podium finish was in 2020 and he's one of the biggest talents in world cycling right now. Teo, well, thanks so much for joining us. I think a good place to start is actually asking how you are because as we're recording, it's been about maybe three weeks, I think, since you had your crash at Paris, Nice, it was the fourth stage, wasn't it? And you kind of landed on your head. So how are you? Yeah. Hi, Charlie. I'm I'm all right, thanks. Um, yeah, it was a new experience, actually. Uh, first time that I've had a crash of, of that nature and had some, some road rash on my face, uh, which is actually the first time in probably getting on 12 years of, of uh, bike racing. So... Yeah, I can probably count myself lucky in that respect, and and didn't looking back anyway, and uh, and didn't have any kind of too lasting injuries, but um, at the same time was was a pretty big break from training to kind of get back to hundred percent in the end. Um, certainly seems like there's also a lot of stuff going around um, in the peloton, which is in cycling as well, which is um, pretty typical this time of year. So I think in hindsight, I just had kind of two weeks of. Some definitely some concussion stuff. Um, also, pretty deep injury on my knee, recovering from the kind of impact of the crash, and then I think I picked up a cold at, at the race just to compound that. So, uh, yeah, it's not been the best of weeks, but uh, here we are. Keep uh, keep positive and on to the next. How tough is that mentally? Then not just the crash, but the aftermath of it, and then the time off when you know you're out of training. Yeah, I mean, I think. It, it's all kind of relative to the individual circumstance, isn't it? Weirdly, I had more time off after this kind of somewhat innocuous crash than when I broke my collarbone, for example, and, and had it pinned and kind of three, four days later could 
ride quite easy outside again. Um, so, yeah, I think looking at it 10 days later, I was probably lucky in the fact that I just was feeling kind of a really deep fatigue um, and I didn't really, there was about eight, nine, 10 days where I just couldn't even have, have ridden or, or certainly couldn't have trained properly. So um, I guess that takes any anxiety or kind of, um, yeah, mental side of it out of the equation really when you know it's just not possible, then um, you, you just settle into kind of focusing on the recovery. And yeah, I was lucky enough. I was with my family and, and just kind of switched off from everything. And um, I don't know if made the most of that situation is the right way to put it, but certainly kind of just enjoyed spending time with them and um and mentally recharged for what is still a long season ahead which is uh, is also always the most important thing to remember probably yeah and recognizing that mental fatigue i think must be really important james you know we talk on this podcast about performance and about science and about nutrition but how much of what you do also takes into account the psychological part Oh, it's absolutely massive, Charlie, because you can have the best athlete in the world, the most fueled athlete in the world, but if they're not mentally prepared and mentally able to deal with setbacks like crashes that Teo's just encountered, um, it's very likely that they're, they're never going to reach the top level of the sport. And I think we've just quickly got an insight to Teo's character there in that he turned what was a negative around into a positive quite quickly. In other words, focusing on what you can do spending time with your family and getting ready for the rest of the season. And also, I think, an intelligence emotionally of how you felt, which I think sometimes is so important because we battle that. So before we move on, for those that don't know, you grew up in London, but you grew up in Hackney in East London, which I suppose is fairly rare. But then we have that like famous quote from Bradley Wiggins, who was from Kilburn. So how did you actually get into cycling? Because... Before we started recording, another reference, we were actually talking about football. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, lifelong lifelong football fan. And yeah, definitely grew up hoping to be the, the next Thierry Henry or uh, Freddie Lundberg or Robert Perez, something something along those lines. Uh, James is laughing away to himself, having probably seen me trying to do a keepy-uppy. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was just always really into sport and being outside even more so. And um yeah, in East London, there's, you know, amazing green space and parks and, um, yeah, I think also amazing community, to be honest. So growing up, I was always doing something and, and bikes were actually a big part of that, even if I didn't start um, doing cycling as a sport until I was about uh, 14 or so, 13, 14. But yeah, I did uh, football a lot growing up and just kind of was keen and also hungry and competitive to do a bit of everything. And then I started doing uh, swimming, actually, when I was about um, 11 or 12. And that was kind of the first time I'd done like a little bit more of an endurance sport. And that culminated in summer of 2008 when I was 13. I was part of a, a channel swim relay under the kind of official channel swim rules. Uh, no wetsuits and lots of Vaseline and, and all the rest of it. As so, a 13-year-old? Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's a lot at 13. Yeah, I think at the time, I, I loved it. I think, you know, I was always kind of searching for for things that I enjoyed and neither of my parents really have any background in sport whatsoever. So it was always very much 
led by by myself really and yeah I definitely wouldn't have said it was too much at the time and and looking back I, I loved it so I, I wouldn't say that now and you know it was only a year or two later really that I kind of got my first road bike and was quickly off doing rides which some people might say were, were too much again but um, looking back I was always loving it and having fun and going out exploring which I think is is the key point really when we talk about sport with with young people especially. Mm, that adventure and not always about that performance and then that leads to it doesn't it? Yeah definitely I think it I think just community and and having fun enjoying it it's it is a cliched thing to say isn't it and um and we've all you know been there playing whatever it is five-a-side football and there's someone's parent on the on the sidelines going going bonkers but I think looking back I feel really grateful that everything I did was was kind of driven by my own passion and and there was no one looking over me or or even really with with any expertise in it I guess and that kind of just allowed me to go on my own adventure and and that continued you know all the way through my teens really even kind of when I left the juniors and, and went into the under 23 team that I was on, the kind of semi-pro level, um, it was always kind of driven by me. And, and I think that's, um, that's an asset when you then look back and realise what your life and your kind of individual journey means to you, I guess. When we were talking about getting you on and we both you know, really wanted to speak to you and have you on the podcast, James was telling me about when you were at the Team Sky launch, was it in 2010? And you were how old then? Uh, yeah, I think I was probably, it was in January, so I was probably um, 14, I think, 14, yeah. Uh, just, I, I was working in a, in a bike shop. They had a, a competition online, which is, which is strange to look back because I never entered competitions when I was a kid. I always thought they were a bit, I don't know, pointless, I guess, because um, you never won. Uh, but I guess there was enough winners in this competition that uh, it was about half seven the morning of they sent you a text message of where you had to meet. I can remember it on a, you know, one of those Nokia 810s or something, some some, some such phone. And uh, my mum had to leave with my little brother to drop him off at the Childminders for work at, I think it was around seven or, or even half six um, in those years. So... I would kind of, you know, get up and have breakfast and, and, yeah, go to school at some point. I had double maths always that Wednesday mornings it was. Um, but that, that morning I rode in and I had no idea where, I think it was Horse Guards Parade where, we, where I had to meet. And there was kind of five groups that then came together on the, the Mall outside um, Buckingham Palace. Um, but it was funny, really, because I was just discovering cycling. Uh, I was working in, in the bike shop down the road, selling science in sport, funnily enough. That's kind of, that was when I first came across the, the product because I was trying to flog it. Um, <laughs> that's so funny. Talk about I came across one of those. <laughs> yeah, I came across one of those really small, old SIS bottles the other day. Like the, in my head, it's like the original one uh, with the narrow head. And uh, it made me laugh a little bit because uh, that must be from back then when I was working in the shop there 12 years ago, 10 years ago almost, more. And did you ever think, because there must have been such amazing cyclists there, like Chris Froome, I presume, and Bradley Wiggins, and the such like, you know, did it ever enter your head you'd be in this position now? 
in all honesty, I didn't know didn't know that much about the sport at the time. I was I was really just getting into it. Um, I knew kind of about cycling. We'd always ridden around the city. That was for a lot of my childhood how we moved around the city. We a lot of the time didn't have a car, so we would often cycle places. But that was what bikes were for me, and and to some degree still are, to be honest. But I definitely knew who a few of the riders were, and yeah, I was I guess. You know, looking back, I was really lucky because I think you can trace it to 2007 where I really knew nothing, nothing about cycling, but happened to stumble across the the Tour de France prologue um, on those same streets in in central London. And then again, there was a Tour of Britain stage a couple of years later, again, on the Mall, weirdly. And then, yeah, the team launched and, and obviously, especially everything that happened in 2012 was just all of that was kind of perfectly linear and um in equilibrium really with with the development of my career I guess uh, I think in in 2012 I was in my first year of juniors so it was like the real first big year of taking it very seriously racing for GB um racing in Europe and yeah I stood with a with a friend uh John Dibbon um on the side of the Olympic road race course and we we watched all the guys go past some of whom you know I was lucky enough to to later be teammates with and and I think looking back I, I you know I was just I think you could say the same about about now really but um you know it was great to have that inspiration growing up um and to see it so kind of relatable um with so many British protagonists especially yeah I think it make it just shows you even the way you told that story how important it was to have those figures and role models and to have the sport in the limelight. So Teo, this episode, we're kind of exploring fueling and endurance. And I read a quote from you that said, I try not to get too consumed with diet, but that was back in 2013. How much has things changed for you if they have in terms of your diet? And James, why are you laughing? (laughs) I'm laughing because Teo mentioned before there that in the beginning, he didn't know anything about cycling. But when I first met him, which was probably 2016, I was instantly impressed by how much he knew about the sport, but also how much he knew about himself, his own physiology, his own nutritional requirements. So that quote when he said there about not getting obsessed by dieting and nutrition, when I met him, he was he was full gas on nutrition. And it was someone that I thought was going to take it really serious and have a real positive influence on his career so go on Teo how how do you react to that is my quote false then uh I mean I think it's in context isn't it I guess I would have been uh 15 at the time of that quote and I think to to preface anything else I think it's really 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 important that again looking back um that we we didn't ever talk about nutrition other than porridge oats and uh cereal bars and uh, beans on toast when we were youth and, and junior races and and we certainly never ever talked about weight and I think even it was kind of only getting into the the second year of my time in under 23 really where I was kind of um, conscious of that and and aware you know that it is obviously a big part of, of the sport but I think now I'm probably just coming out of that development uh, part of your life where you know everything is a little bit more more stable I certainly think even in the time working with James it was always you know quite evident year on year that you were still growing you're still developing as an athlete and and perhaps looking at your your best ever weights and and 
what you've seen on the scale as an athlete is, is just not a good thing to to be too wary of because you know you are still developing you're getting more powerful and and chasing those things can just can can be impossible really in the end um but of course yeah i think uh fueling is is uh a huge part of the sport and i think for me it's it's been certainly in the last couple of years just really focusing on on fueling more and more um and and not being afraid of that and and really noticing the benefits of of when you are really full of energy and, and how much more consistent and and uh, effective you can be in your training and and of course your racing what's the difference for you then what can be the difference i think there's definitely a time and a place for being more restrictive or or not overfueling on the bike but i think certainly from from my perspective the the culture in cycling is is often far too weighted towards underfueling and i think actually that can of course be an area where people can perhaps manipulate certain aspects of their physiology or of their training but equally i think i've certainly you know always kind of going back to to my own experiences really seen the benefit of just being very aggressive with fueling to be honest and um and reaping the rewards in terms of the the training load that you can occur in a day but but even more so the intensity you know i think it's it's a very fine line between fatigue being as a result of of training or as a result of, of being under fueled and um of course that's a balance that we're always trying to toe in a sport where your weight is still so important but i think every year i've become more and more aware of how well i can fuel and and looking back at some of the big days in my career and you think wow it's incredible how much I ate that day and I think still I, I think that most casual cyclists or, or punters just would not believe if all of that food was laid out on a table um, how much we we can eat uh, when we're really racing super hard and, and in the last week of a Grand Tour especially. Yeah Teo makes a lot of great points on the fueling for performance side of things and absolutely this can be the difference between winning and losing. Underfueling can really lose you a bike race, but at the same regard, fueling well can win you a bike race. Maybe to put it into context for some of the listeners who are listening here, we just published a research study recently where we had athletes come into the lab, trained cyclists come into the lab. We asked them to ride for three hours steady state. And during that exercise, they consumed zero grams of carbohydrate per hour 45 grams per hour or 90 grams per hour and then after the three hours we asked them to hold a certain power output and ride to the point of exhaustion now on the 90 grams per hour trial they were able to exercise for four minutes on the 45 gram per hour trial they were able to exercise for two and a half minutes so 90 seconds less and then in the zero gram per hour trial they were exercising for around 100 seconds now, Teo, if you think about a big climb in the Alps and you think that if someone's on the attack and you have to try and hold their wheel and then all of a sudden you, you fall down, the, you're going backwards, 90 seconds is massive. That is the difference between winning and losing. And that's something as simple as just forgetting to eat once or twice per hour on the bike. So this really is the difference between winning and losing. And I'm sure Teo can commentate on some of the experiences in his career where it's been the difference between winning and losing. 
Yeah, I was going to ask, have you ever been in that situation, Taylor, when, you know, I'm sure it's a lot of learnings where you have made that mistake and you felt it or you've had the opposite thing where you know you've got that fuel and you've had that edge? Yeah, I mean, definitely, I think the the easiest one to draw on would be um, one of the early stages in in the Giro last year um, when we finished up Mount Etna and and Geraint had had crashed uh, at the start of the stage. And yeah, just because it was a hectic day and, and a dangerous final hour and a half, to be honest, it was it was uh, some really fast downhill cobbled streets in, in Sicily there, that those bottles and uh, the occasional body and bike and, and all sorts flying everywhere um, and s- some kind of very sketchy moments that it just kind of got to this situation where I was actually feeling really, really good. And we'd had such a kind of, different day than we'd expected with Geraint's crash right at the start that it then just kind of meant I got onto this climb and it was about an hour or so I think um, from the bottom to the top of of Mount Etna and for about 50 minutes I felt really really superb really comfortable uh, covering all the kind of attacks uh, really confident really focused and just in the last 10 minutes when it kind of the last big kickoff was I just Oh, I lost kind of 10% of, of what I'd been doing for the climb Pr- prior to that, uh, 40 or 50 watts even. Um, and I was just kind of monopace, I guess you could say. I was just kind of uh, getting to, to the finish all of a sudden. And then, and looking back on it that evening, um, I was pretty disappointed because I lost, I think, almost a minute in, in the final two kilometres. But I think going into the climb, I'd kind of had it in my head as it being a 20 to 30 minute effort um, without consciously making that uh, assertion. But I think I just I hadn't really been conscious of my fueling on the climb. I'd only I'd fueled very well all day. It had been a solid day. I think, yeah, maybe some teams had even taken it on a bit to kind of put G under pressure, having, you know, they could see half his side was missing essentially so for whatever reason it, it had been a really hard day and 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 I'd fueled really well like James says 90 100 grams an hour all day but it had been such an accumulation of work all day that I actually still needed to to keep topping that up on on the the last climb as it was kind of an hour long effort and I changed that for for the rest of the race and yeah it worked really well for me and I think kind of just going back to what we were saying about learning you know, from maybe 2013 to now, that's also a big part of it is I think there has been a bit of a development or a big development in, in the products available to athletes as well. And and that does make it easier then to fuel well. And then you realize how effective that good fueling is. And so it's kind of that chicken and the egg where, you know, looking back, you can't say, oh, I knew that taking in X and X was the best thing to do because maybe that product didn't even exist at the time and it wouldn't have been as easy to do that uh, maybe 10 years ago, let's say. The products that have got carbohydrate that you can actually intake when you're actually yeah. racing. Yeah, and especially at high intensities. I think, you know, it's all good and well talking about uh, taking in 100 or for sure I've done many, many days in, in the last year to two years of, of 120 in certain moments or even for for entire days and I think it's all good and well talking about that but without the the right um mechanisms to do so then the vast majority of people will just find that impossible and you know that also does go back to what I was saying a little bit earlier about training is you know 
we all know that it's not just about turning up on on race day and and opening something for the first time and expecting it to work there's there's a massive part of kind of training being not only about the you know what you see on your your bike computer um it's also training the gut it's also like james says training to remember to eat those two or three things per hour when it's when it's really on and and maybe not the easiest thing to do and how much is under fueling a problem because You've mentioned it, Teo, and I feel like nearly every athlete I speak to at the moment talks about underfueling, and we don't often talk about that side of things. We talk about it the other way around. Yeah, underfueling is a massive part of the, of the problem, Charlie. And, and as Teo mentioned, it's. I mean, he, Teo's a, a mid-career professional now. I would say, Teo, I don't want to say that you're too old or too young, but it's take it's taken you to this time in your career to really embrace fueling. And I think certainly with younger athletes coming through, they could probably fuel better from the start of their careers and, and have a much more rounded start to their career, if you like. Teo, why do you think there is that, or do you find there is that where some athletes don't do carbohydrate or see it as an evil? Yeah, I think I would, social media definitely does have does have a big part to play and, and equally kind of, you know, unfortunately, um, a lot of, of the professionals who, like it or not, are role models for, for younger people, perhaps don't always embody that responsibility um, in the most mindful way. And that's not to say they're, they're going out there to, to mislead um, anyone. But I think um, perhaps they, they don't know themselves that they're, they're not eating enough. Or, you know, I always find it tricky when when you see interviews of, of riders talking so much about their weight because we do all know it's a huge important part of the sport don't get me wrong but I think um, specifically with the younger generation in mind um, trying to flip the focus away from that um, as much as possible because I think they they already have enough focus just turning the tv on and, and seeing you know 180 men or women in the in the biggest races of the world looking fit and and lean and so strong that uh, of course, they aspire to to be like them in every way possible, whether that's equipment or sponsors or riding for the biggest team in the world or or indeed body image. And I think you know it's it's a whole a whole package, really, isn't it? So yeah, certainly I'm a big believer in in encouraging young people to to fuel and and to to eat when they're hungry. And the brain needs that energy. In the end, the brain isn't sat there chugging away on on fat or protein or anything else and and uh yeah like it or not that's uh, responsible for everything in 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 our lives you know the way we feel the way we interact and and yeah the way we perform so i do think it's really important and um there's so much information out there you know we're seeing young guys which maybe now that i'm 26 a few days ago i can say young guys without anyone <laughs> laughing at me coming in a lot of people are coming into the sport you know uh with a, a huge amount of knowledge because there's so much out there you know podcasts even like this really i think that are so informative um and it's just you know making sure that people focus on the right things at the right time because your body's very different when you're 20 to perhaps a, an older rider who may be in their mid-30s and, and having raced and trained in a certain way for two decades I want to pick up on something you just said because I'm really glad that you've brought it up and I love that you've said it, that actually it's also about your brain and it's about how you feel. 
and not it's not just about get it in for your performance to be able to go. James, can you talk us through that and how important it is to fuel for the brain and for your emotions and how you feel? I know I'm definitely somebody that feels it if I've not eaten mentally and I find it hard to concentrate and focus and I can be quite... <laughs> Am I going to say this on a podcast? Short, if I haven't eaten. <laughs> Absolutely, Charlie. I mean, wh- one of the reasons why we eat carbohydrate during exercise or consume carbohydrate during exercise is indeed for the brain itself. Because when your blood sugar starts to run low during exercise, your decision making goes down. And so then you start to make bad decisions and your brain doesn't have access to the fuel. So carbohydrate as a fuel isn't just for your muscles. It's also for your brain. Um Teo's reference to social media there, Charlie, made me think of another funny story, actually. I remember being on the Tour de France one year, having breakfast with Chris Froome. It was a rest day. So on a rest day, of course, you're not competing. It's You just do 60 minutes or so of a little recovery ride. And so because it was a rest day, then the, re- the breakfast that day wasn't the big carbohydrate portions that Teo's laughing about. So Chris that day just had salmon and eggs for breakfast. He took a photograph of it and then posted it on social media. And then, of course, it blew up that Team Sky, our low-carb team, Chris Froome is a low-carb athlete, doesn't eat carbs. And then I would go to conferences and I would have to correct people, and even in the academic world, that actually Team Sky aren't a low-carb team. And I know because I actually work for them at the same time. So it just shows you the power of social media. How funny. It's all in context, right? Teo, do you do social media? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, I think there's a time and a place. And it is great, isn't it? But you just you have to take it with a pinch of salt. And, um, and there's definitely a lot of the time that I wish that we could find better ways to show more, really, and, and still break down more barriers. I was just thinking about Rowan Dennis and I eating uh, Rice Krispies at 9 p.m. at night in a hotel in the mountains in Italy six months ago when when um, James was talking about low carb and and what what was that Sestriere day gram per kilo James was it 18 is oh that, yes yes is that so, right this is another story Charlie um so a couple of years ago in the in the tour of Italy which Teo won it in 2020 Chris Froome won it in 2018 and on stage 19 in 2018 Chris pulled off which was like the biggest comeback in the history of the sport where he rode in the front for over three and a half hours by himself. And that was a super high fueling day. It was 6,000 calories he ingested that day. Um, but the total amount of carbohydrate that he had across the whole day was 17 or 18 grams per kilogram body mass. Now, we'll speak to Louise Burke later, and she will tell you that the recommendations range from 3 to 12. On that day, Chris had 18 which is unheard of. So again, when I would go and present this data and speak to academics and practitioners, they wouldn't believe me. But Chris would testify that if he didn't feel like that on that particular stage, there's no way he could have held that power output that he did for three hours. And I think I think Rowan and I were pretty doing pretty similarly, uh, to be honest, James. I mean, certainly in those last couple of stages, there was, there was a few days I had at least two uh, beta fuels in in the last couple of hours of the race along with yeah gels and and um various other bake bars and also crostata we had a, a two-week battle with uh, the, the poor nutritionist i know that was working on the giro because filippo Ganna, the the world champion and i were 
so desperate to uh, to eat crostata, uh, which for those that don't know is a Italian kind of biscuit uh, with jam on um, that you make in big slabs uh, with beautiful crosses on it. And uh, we had this two week uh, quest to get our crostata and. It was only kind of a few months ago that I actually told poor Ainoa that uh, there'd been a, an espresso truck at the start line of, of every day, which had Crostata for the riders to take. So we'd say on the bus, can we get Crostata? And she would say, no, 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 you know, the, the ratios aren't right. There's too much fat in it. And I would take a few of the, the foil that we have in the bus for, for putting our rice cakes in and I would go and and anyway take my my crostata from the start and you know I know I was right in the fact that there is a little bit more fat than might be the optimal in in uh, crostata but I think first and foremost I've always also eaten a lot of real food whenever I've uh, raced and and trained Um, whether that be stroop waffles or you know a bit of cake here and there or whatever it is really that makes you happy um i think is is also really important but yeah what we're going back to the emotion is is also massive and when you're going out and doing six seven hour days on your bike back to back i can't tell you how much pleasure you get from taking something out of your pocket that that makes you happy and smile and and that you enjoy there's nothing better than that and you've wrapped it up as well already and you know you've got it yeah in the pocket (laughs) nice and warm uh lovely Jam. So thanks to that man that was driving his uh, truck around Italy and uh, giving us uh, Cristata. Poor I know her. She only found out afterwards, but bless her boots. I'm sure she's all right. So can you, maybe both of you, give us examples of what the quantities look like? And I think it's a really important message what you talked about, and I'm sure you'll agree, James, about making sure that it's in a healthy way. Maybe, Teo, you can start of what an actual day would look like for you, maybe a race day or a training day. I think you've nailed it there, Charlie, in the fact that every day is different and it's individualized because today I didn't ride my bike, actually. I've had a rest day. So, yeah, I've, I've not consumed tons and tons. I made some uh, pancakes this morning that were pretty high in protein um, with some carrots in, actually, blended up, um, which is favorite recipe of mine. Um, just, like, give it some bulk, really, more than anything, and, and they taste pretty good with a bit of... Uh, nutmeg and cinnamon in there and then yeah I had kind of just a a a light lunch again with with some some eggs um some tortilla wraps but yeah not not you know massive amounts and then tonight I'll have a bit of a bigger dinner I've got uh some dough over there that's just proving to make a couple naans because I don't know why I was craving naan bread earlier um you've actually got uh, some dough that you've made yourself yeah, I really enjoy cooking. It's something I miss when I'm when I'm away. But I've got a hard session tomorrow, so I still, you know, it's not just about today. It's about tomorrow, and you know, I think still probably what I've eaten today is is similar to what a normal person would eat on on a normal day of of their life. Um, but then, yeah, in a race, I actually keep my food very simple in a race. I wouldn't say there's anything superfluous, really, like not too much veg, not too much excessive amounts of protein i just really tried to focus on kind of always having we had this nutritionist from liverpool in the team a few years ago and he still gets from Be- from belfast tail thank you no he's from liverpool in everyone's in everyone's uh, mind eye and he always talks about having these 30 grams of protein and this still gets said 30 grams of protein i don't know why by 
people from all over the world in all accents, 30 grams of protein. So I think once you have that in your each meal, then you, you're fueling, you know, a, a carb-heavy breakfast. For me, I try not to have too much fiber because I just find it easier on the bike. And then I have a big pasta lunch, big pasta dinner. And once you've got the, those basics, there's not too much more to it, to be honest, on race. A lot of caffeine. Uh, I love coffee, so that's a big part of it of my morning as well kind of routine and um yeah to be honest it's quite simple and i think simple is is often the most effective way come on then liverpudlian belfastian <laughs> you can come in <laughs> no i think tails i think tails said it all there charlie i mean it, what he has said is and we kind of covered this in episode two with carl frampton actually was sort the protein out first and then feed the carbohydrate in and around when you need it now on a race day like the Giro d'Italia or the Tour de France, breakfast is lots of porridge, lots of rice, lots of smoothies and breads. During the race itself, it's feeding up towards 90 grams per hour with a mixture of rice cakes and gels and, and drinks. And then after the race, actually something that we haven't touched on, the role of recovery. Because in a stage race like the Tour de France or the Giro, you've typically got 18 hours from, you might finish at 5 p.m. one day, and then you might start the race the next day at 11 a.m. So recovery after the stage is absolutely critical. So there you're feeding every hour for three or four hours with the usual suspects, rice, pasta, potatoes. Then you go home that evening in the hotel in our kitchen truck, be another high carbohydrate meal, and then you get ready for the next day. What I would say is that if you miss one of those recovery meals out, it's very, very likely that you'll underperform the next day. And so recovery afterwards is just as important as fueling on the bike itself. James, what's the most important thing we can learn from Teo and elite cyclists for recreational exercises or amateur athletes? I think for amateur, amateur athletes who are interested in endurance, whether it's running or cycling or any endurance sport, when it comes to competition day, race day, or when it comes to those training days where intensity is key, then come back to the basics, which is carbohydrate is king and fuel well for those days. And if you do that, you'll perform well. And it's on those days when the training intensity or the duration isn't as high. They're the days when you can eat less. And it, as Teo said before, and I know I'm guilty of this as well, Charlie, because I believe nutrition is pretty simple. And if you do the basics consistently well, you'll give yourself the best chance to succeed. I'm convinced of that. Cool, we don't need to do this podcast anymore. <laughs> well, the, the very reason why we're doing this podcast is to try and share that message and get good people like Teo on and good scientists to present the facts and, and tell people how it is and to dispel some of these myths. And my final comment is you can have Rice Krispies and you can have Italian jammy biscuit. James what I loved so much about speaking to Teo and I really enjoyed that conversation was he normalized a lot of things. It was a really human approach because I think sometimes when we hear athletes, we hear that real rigid obsession, but he seemed to have a, a balance where he enjoyed food. You know, he talked about the, the jammy Italian biscuit that I can't even remember its name or pronounce. How important is it to get that balance? Or were you a little bit like, oh no, he's eating those things and he shouldn't be. <laughs> not at all Charlie I'm, I'm, I was really glad actually that Teo brought that up 
And I think that shows you, first of all, how balanced Teo is as an individual and how much he's learned over the years and, and how educated he is in this space of nutrition. And, and that's the whole reason of this podcast, Charlie, because with more education, I think that brings more balance to your life. I think it brings more balance to your performance. So like I said to you many times, Teo would be great for this episode, apart from saying that I was Scouse and not from Belfast, obviously. To be fair to him, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put in there because you do live there and you work there. And you studied there. So, and apparently everyone calls you that anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, well, I've lived, I've lived in Liverpool longer than I've lived in Belfast now. But it, on a serious note, Tail Graves, so many good lessons there for younger amateur athletes, for adult amateur athletes, that hopefully when they go into their weekend long rides, as many of us do, they'll think more about fueling and they'll enjoy their training more and they'll certainly perform better on race day for it. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to pick up on with you before we move on is Teo really demonstrated to me the importance of carbohydrate. And I wonder how we can get this message out more. Do you think it's culturally and psychologically a lot of the time that we worry that if you eat too much carbohydrate, then it's to do with body image? I just wonder because he showed how important it was. It was the difference between winning and and not winning. Yes, absolutely, Charlie. And and carbohydrate, quite rightly, gets a bad rep at times because, of course, lots of foods contain sugar. Lots of food contains added sugars. There's many processed foods that, unfortunately, many people around the world overeat and overconsume. And because of that excess consumption of carbohydrates, that's when it can have negative health consequences. But if you're an athlete or a serious amateur athlete who understands the role of carbohydrate for exercise and you consume the right amount of carbohydrates at the right time, then you can use them to your advantage and you can use them to fuel your training and performance. And for the brain and for decision-making and for focus. I think that's really important to emphasize. James, I'd like to bring in Professor Louise Burke now. She's a sports dietitian with nearly 40 years of experience in the education and counseling of elite athletes. She worked at the Australian Institute of Sport for 30 years. She was also the team dietitian for the Australian Olympic teams for the 1996 right through to 2012 Summer Olympic Games. To say Louise is a reputable expert is an understatement. And in 2009, she was awarded a Medal of the Order of Australia for her contribution to sports nutrition. Louise, we're so pleased to have you on. And James tells me that when he was a young student doing his degree, he always wanted to grow up to be like you, Louise. And you're like the godmother of sports and nutrition. So Louise, how's that make you feel? Maybe we start there. <laughs> well, it makes me feel old. And I'm sure that I've I'm sure that I was only twenty-one yesterday. I don't know where all these years have gone, but look, I'm I'm excited to have so many colleagues like James to work with now because um, the ability to be able to collaborate with really clever, motivated people is what keeps me in in the business now. It's um, not just what I can do, but it's how I can work in um, collaboration in teams with young people like James that make it all worthwhile. James, your eyes have lit up like a kid at Christmas, <laughs> speaking to Louise. Yeah, no, it, it takes me back to being a student, actually, Charlie. When I wasn't falling out of nightclubs in Liverpool or playing football, I was in the library and I was I used to read because I loved it. I just couldn't get enough of it. And more often than not, some of the papers that I would come back to would obviously be Louise Burke's. And it, it made me think that, is there any area of sport nutrition that this lady hasn't actually been active in? And so right at that stage of my career, I always thought I wanted to be someone 
to try and be like Louise and, and touch so many different areas of sport nutrition because I think that's how you really make a difference. So Louise was definitely a big source of inspiration for me growing up. Louise, joking aside, you're one of the biggest names in the field and one of the first sports nutritionists and we're so pleased to have you. So maybe we can start back there because we want to talk a lot about carbohydrates and fueling and carbohydrate loading, which originally comes from, was it the 60s? Can you explain where this practice comes from and how it's changed over your career? Yes. Well, it's interesting that it was a really almost chance meeting about um, some work that had been done with um, this technique of muscle biopsies to understand what was happening in the muscle that um, led me on my interest in sports nutrition, but also the carbohydrate story being almost the beginning of sports nutrition and its popularity. So once those researchers had used the muscle biopsy technique to be able to in, to investigate what was happening in the muscle and explain how you could change your diet to improve the muscle fuel availability. They then produced this carbohydrate loading protocol. The first version of it had the phase where you needed to deplete the muscle glycogen first before you could supercompensate it. So there was two parts to it. And so that first protocol that was invented was a bit more complicated than we now think it needs to be because if we look back to the experiments that were done, those were done in a laboratory with people who were trained but not elite or very heavily trained. And so to get the first part of the process, the ability for the enzyme that's producing glycogen storage as its outcome to be activated, they needed to deplete it really specially. But when subsequent studies were done in more well-trained people, it was found that the process of the training that they had done had already activated the glycogen enzyme. And so the process of, of carbohydrate loading could be simplified to just being an increase in carbohydrate in combination with a taper in training. And that was enough to be able to then supercompensate the muscle glycogen levels and allow performance to be enhanced as a result. So one of the important um, messages that came out of the first studies was that the way that the improvement occurred was not allowing you to run faster so much as allowing you to run at your optimal pace for longer because you didn't run out of the carbohydrate fuel. So what does it look like now? What's the correct way to do it? Because um, me and James are actually having a bit of a, a laugh about this because I think when, when I was younger, definitely it was taught where you literally empty, empty the tank and then eat, 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 eat. And I remember doing that a few times and just massively overeating where my stomach couldn't actually handle it. Yes, and, and you probably chose the wrong types of foods as well. I can remember the first um, Ironman races that I did in Kona, Hawaii, and they used to put on a, a carbo-loading banquet for the competitors. And you'd get there and you'd see the food choices and a lot of it would be cream pies and all sorts of, sort of junk food because it was – it was thought that for some reason that junk food was full of carbohydrate, which it does have a carbohydrate content, <laughs> but often it was higher in fat than anything else. And you'd see people just shoveling food down in all sorts of crazy amounts, which would lead to this gastrointestinal discomfort. So the, the lessons that I learned was that you needed to be able to identify good carbohydrate-rich sources 
and then you needed to eat them in sort of measured and sensible quantities so that you gained the carbohydrate targets but left your gut feeling comfortable for the race. And, in fact, these days we often suggest that athletes do a low residue or a low fibre form of carbohydrate loading so that um, there's less roughage and fibre in their gut and that helps on two accounts. It can reduce the weight of your stomach so that when you get into the race line you're a little bit lighter, which always feels better, but it also then helps you to not have to do the the number twos on the morning of the race and interfere with um, just that last bit of preparation before the race or during the race. And so from the gastrointestinal point of view, getting the comfort right can be another aspect that you can build into the carbohydrate loading by both um, manipulating the carbohydrate content but reducing the fibre content of the foods that you're consuming. Yeah, I, I think Louise makes a number of great points there, Charlie. First of all, I'd, I'd like to go back to why carbohydrate loading improves performance. And I think a lot of people think that when you carbohydrate load, it makes you go faster. But of course, it doesn't make you go faster. What it allows you to do is to better maintain your race pace so that towards the end of the race, you still have enough carbohydrate in the tank to maintain the speed that you were running on or cycling at earlier on in the race. And Louise also then makes a great point about how do you carbohydrate load? Because it's not just about the amount of food that you consume, it's also the type of food that you consume. And actually, carbohydrate loading, and I'm sure Louise would agree, is one of the easiest things to get correct in sport nutrition. But it's probably one of the things where a lot of athletes, experienced athletes actually, make quite a lot of mistakes, even though it's 60 years old as a practice. How much carbohydrate then can our bodies actually store and how quickly does it run out? That's kind of the million dollar question because we can look in textbooks and say on average this happens in a cycling or a running um, experiment on a laboratory treadmill or ergometer. But in real life, we've got very little data from um, elite athletes. It's very hard to measure if you wanted to use the muscle biopsy technique. Um, And there are very few other ways in which it can be done practically to actually monitor what's happening with the levels in the muscle. And so sometimes we have to um, find an indirect way of, of looking at that. And that might be as simple as looking at performance changes, looking at the ability to sustain that optimal race paces, as James said. And so we've got a few clues and we can put some numbers around it and we do that in guidelines. But I don't know about you, James, I'm always a little bit um, hesitant to try and make those guidelines seem like they're the Ten Commandments because there is so much individual variability around it. Yeah, and I think that's, Charlie, where you have real skilled practitioners like Louise who are experienced in the field because sometimes what's written in a textbook doesn't always hold true especially when you're working with the real top guys I remember in the first 12 months actually working at Team Sky one of my biggest learning experiences was that if I was to do textbook nutrition with some of these guys I'm not sure that I would actually have any success so it was kind of adapting the guidelines and not treating them as 10 commandments as Louise said it's adapting those guidelines for the athletes that you're working with and that's the real skill I think in sport nutrition. What about for in every day so not an elite athlete I know it's hard to quantify but is there any kind of advice to help people understand fueling and how much carbohydrate they need if you're just general exercising or maybe training for an Ironman or or a marathon or your first 10k or a fast 10k 
we, we can give some numbers and, you know, generally as a, a rule of thumb, we say that if you're doing very minimal exercise or the exercise that you're doing is not very fuel intensive, then somewhere in the order of three to five grams of carbohydrate per kilogram body mass might be a reasonable starting point. So if you're dealing with, a say, a, a 50 kilo female, it might be you know, 150 to 200 grams a day, and then you can scale it up for a male of, of 70 kilos. But even as I'm saying that, I'm thinking that's still just a ballpark. And we often find that that um, it's too much or too little for, for some people. So you could start with that and then get some feedback from how well you're training, whether you're happy with the weight maintenance or the body composition changes that you're aiming to do and, and then try and integrate it into the the whole of the nutrition program that you're looking at. So I know people like some numbers and there's some numbers I've just given you, but even so, that's just a starting point. And then you need to add to that according to the exercise that you are doing and trying to um, think about the quality and the intensity and the importance of the exercise and how important it is to be able to perform during that exercise session. So James and I both work with athletes where we say these sessions are really important to do and we're going to eat more carbohydrate before and during to be well fueled for that session to perform optimally. But there are other sessions of exercise that we don't care so much about that goal and so you may not need to eat any more carbohydrate for that session and in some sessions we may even restrict carbohydrate to try and drive adaptations in the muscle that can help longer term performance be the goal. Yeah I can pick up there Charlie actually as well just on the general guidelines it it reminds me of a study that we did last year with males and females actually and we deliberately didn't use elite athletes. We used almost everyday exercisers, people that probably aren't as fit as you, Charlie, to be honest. Um, and we asked these subjects to do three types of training sessions. One of them was a 10-mile road run around Liverpool. Um, we asked them to do two track running sessions. One of them was eight times 800 metres, which was basically full gas efforts. And then the other session was three times 10-minute efforts on the track. And we fed those subjects six grams per kilogram for two days before those training sessions. And of course, they were all able to get through those training sessions with no signs of fatigue, no reductions in training intensity. So I would agree with Louise that at that amateur type level, I would say it's probably on a sliding scale between three and six grams per kilogram. But then, of course, when you get to that elite level, it could be as much as 12 grams per kilogram per day. So it really is that sliding scale. James, on that, can you quantify those numbers a little bit with food? Just give us a bit of an example of what the differences may look like if it's a breakfast. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so let's say that we had a, a 70 kilogram male or female um, and perhaps they were on a, a lower carbohydrate day. Let's call it three grams per kilogram. Well, then maybe the breakfast for that athlete on that day might look something as simple as two slices of toast, um, an omelette and a glass of milk. Now, if that athlete was then the next day on a 12 grams per kilogram type day, so a real high carbohydrate intake day, then their breakfast alone might actually have three grams per kilogram alone, the entire carbohydrate that they would have for the whole day, the previous day. And so their breakfast on that type of scenario, that might extend to consuming the foods that they did the day before, plus a large bowl of porridge. Um, 
maybe four pancakes, a glass of orange juice, a banana smoothie, for instance. And so then you can start to see how the different types of food can quickly add up to differences in carbohydrate. Louise, one of the things I really wanted to get in conversation with you is this whole thing about the controversy over carbohydrate. I mean, all you have to do is Google carbohydrate and it's like carbs are bad. They make you fat. And then this whole high carb or high fat. Why is it seen as bad and why has this become the conversation? Well, things go in cycles. And at the beginning of my career, it was actually the opposite. We were telling people that carbs are fantastic and we need to eat more of them and we need to reduce fat. And there were a lot of good messages inside that because the way that nutritionists were thinking about it was we're asking people to eat more whole grains and fruits. And, you know, we were thinking of not just the benefit of the extra carbohydrate, but all the other nutrients and fibre and and good food chemicals that were going to be consumed. But then what happens is that people either misinterpret the message or the food industry becomes involved and suddenly we've got all these junk sources of carbohydrate. You know, you've got muffins the size of your head and you've got all this fat-free <laughs> cream ice, cream that, yeah, <laughs> ice cream that comes in buckets. And so people are eating more carbohydrate, but it's not good quality carbohydrate they're often eating more fat at the same time with it they haven't realised. But we end up doing misjustice to the message because it's um, it's not practised in the, the way we thought. So now there's a backlash because in, in many cases people have been over-consuming carbohydrate, particularly from the, the lower quality food sources with a lot of emphasis on too much sugar. And so we've got people that are, have lower relative carbohydrate requirements because they're not exercising, they're not active, and they're over-consuming carbohydrate, particularly from the low-quality sources. James, I quite often see when people are trying to lose weight or go on a diet, they will literally limit their food intake, you know, on a plate in a restaurant with no carbohydrate, yet they'll have what I would consider as quite unhealthy foods on the plate, but they think it's healthy because there's no carbohydrates on. And Louise, you made a great point about, you know, the there's this top line message and, you know, I work in media and I hear it all the time. I heard it on a radio station, that a national radio station that was like, carbs are bad, they make you fat. But it's whether you're sedentary and how many carbohydrates you're using and whether you're active and the right carbohydrates. So James, what should the message be? Well, if when it comes to weight loss, Charlie, of course, it's about energy balance. And it's so as we covered back in episode one, actually, it's it's calories in versus calories out. And so there's more than one way to skin a cat. There's more than one way to lose weight. There's many different diets out there that will all help you lose weight if you're in a calorie deficit. Now, what tends to happen is a lot of people, when they want to lose weight, they they seem to think that a lower carbohydrate, high fat, type approach is a set of rules that they find easy to follow and because they find it easy to follow then they're in a calorie deficit and then they lose weight then the interpretation is that high fat diets are great and that we should all eat high fat diets and even elite athletes should eat high fat diets but we know from some of Louise's work over the last 20-30 years that for anyone engaging in high intensity exercise high fat diets are not conducive to performance Louise, could you tell us about the supernova studies that your research team has completed around the Olympic race walkers? Because that 
to do with high fat and high carb? And can you summarize what you found out? Yes, so we did our first studies to try and get to the bottom of this new interest in the ketogenic um, high-fat, low-carb diet. And although sometimes people think, oh, that means it must be a high-protein diet, it really is trying to find ways of eating high amounts of fat with moderate amounts of protein. So you're looking at um, having full cream dairy, lots of um, fat around the meat. You might be having... Um, avocados and added creams and oils in foods, but really restricting the carbohydrate sources. So you're only really able to have green leafy vegetables, not the starchy ones like potatoes, very few fruits. So just some berries rather than the whole range of fruits that are available to us. So we had our Olympic and elite level race walkers come into a study where for three weeks, having the high carb approach or a carbohydrate-supported approach at least, and then we compared that with a group that went on the ketogenic diet. And we certainly found that the ketogenic diet increases fat utilisation, even in these athletes that already are well-trained and have good fat-burning capacity inside their muscle. We were able to double it by the, the three weeks on the ketogenic diet. But when we asked them to race, we found that it impaired their performance because even though they could burn the fat, the physiological cost of that is that you need more oxygen to be able to burn fat. And so suddenly it's not the fuel that becomes the limiting factor, it's the ability of the oxygen to be available to the muscle to burn the fuel. And when you've got athletes already exercising at high intensities, it becomes a limiting issue that the oxygen supply can't keep up with the demands of the fat to oxidise and so they have to work at a slightly lower speed than if they were burning carbohydrate as their fuel source. And so we talk about it in terms of the economy of exercise, the speed you can move at for the oxygen that you can deliver to the muscle and these ketogenic diets impair it and so when you are trying to do higher intensity endurance exercise, you'll see the beneficial effects of being carb supported that just can't be replaced, even though you get very good at burning fat. Yeah, I think, Charlie, I would go back to the way that we described it with tail, actually, in that, I mean, I know this is overly simplistic, but to try and translate this to our listeners, it's fat as a fuel for me is, is kind of like using your car in gear one to three. And you might be able to drive for a long time in those gears, but you can't go fast. Whereas putting it into gear four, five, and six, that's your carbohydrate fuels. And they're the fuels that make you go faster. And they're usually where you win races or or you might score a goal in a game of football. Those are carbohydrate-dependent sport-winning moments that are fueled by carbohydrate. And so hopefully that will help the listeners really decipher between the two fuels, if you like. So it can make that much of a difference in terms of performance. So why do people have this interest in this ketogenic diet? Probably from the whole weight loss side of things, I think, to start with. And then as Louise mentioned, if you're using more fat as a fuel, you'll use less carbohydrate so that when you then get to the back end of the race and you need to go up a hill or you need to sprint, you've got more carbohydrate left in the tank because you've used more fat to start with. That's the theory but it doesn't always happen in the real world like that. Is there any sports? I mean, when I, when I think of that, it just makes me say that I, I just said race. It makes me think of like a marathon or as you mentioned, Louise, like an Ironman. 
But are there any benefits or particular sports sporting scenarios where high fat diets are beneficial? Well, if you're doing a, a, an ultra endurance race, which may go over you know many hours and beyond the capacity of your muscles to store glycogen at the start, then you've got two approaches. You can try and find ways to take in extra carbs during that race, which might be one approach. Or you could say, well, I'm only going to move at those slower intensities over this really long duration race. So that could be fat supported. And so you could take that that option as well. And you find that um, there are some ultra marathoners that are good examples of people who've used the ketogenic diet and found it to be beneficial. But you've, you've got to think about what the total race needs are because when you think of something like the Tour de France, which James has had a lot of success, you might think that the overall race, the you know the distances and the average speed that the cyclists are moving at, is sort of moderate intensity exercise. But as James has said, the race winning moves are done at much higher speeds, and so you do need to have that capacity still there. James, I just wanted to pick up on something that I know you've done a study in and around football. Can you tell us some of the changes that you implemented? Yeah, there's been lots of studies done in, in football over the years, actually, Charlie. In fact, Louise and I was part of a, an authorship team with UEFA recently. On the, We published the new nutritional guidelines for football in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. And to go back to the sliding scale analogy that we used before, for a, a professional footballer or an amateur footballer, we suggested that the scale is probably between three and eight grams per kilogram. And the reason why we said that was if you think about the day before a match, like the match day minus one scenario, or the that might be your carbohydrate loading day. So then you're consuming around eight grams per kilogram to get ready for the game. But then maybe on a, a Monday or a Tuesday type training session when it's a very low intensity, then you wouldn't need that amount of carbohydrate. So you reduce your carbohydrate intake for that day and you're essentially fueling for whatever your training session looks like or your upcoming match looks like. And I think that's where sport nutrition is going now, Louise, wouldn't you say? So it's very much that periodized type approach. Eat what you need as and when you need it. And you've um, defined that really nicely with this fuel for the work required little saying, and that really does describe the periodized approach that you understand what your full requirements are and how important it is that it might be carbohydrate supported for performance in some training sessions as well as in your competition and that you change your fuel intake from day to day based on what the exercise requirements are and the importance of having it well fueled with carbs. So before you go, Louise, what advice would you give for a recreational exerciser? A recreational athlete might not do some of the intensity or the duration of the sessions that an elite athlete might have, but the, the same principles are involved. Knowing what the session requires, knowing what the goals of the session are, and then matching that with the amount of fuel, both in terms of the amount as well as the timing of intake to get the best out of that session. I think we don't think enough about food, I think, in, t- in recreational exercising and how that corresponds with training and with exercising even myself I think I hate train to a fairly high level and sometimes it's when I can so I don't often correspond that with my food enough yeah I, I would agree totally Charlie I think a lot of amateur athletes associate fueling with race day and performance 
and they don't think necessarily about training. But actually what you do in the, in training will ultimately dictate how you perform on race day anyway. So the training nutrition needs to be given just as much attention, if not more attention, than the race day nutrition. I, I totally agree. I think sometimes people have a misguided idea that if you exercise enough, it means it doesn't matter what you eat. But we should be sort of turning that around in training to say that the reason that you exercise creates better needs or more important needs around the way that you choose your food. And so, you know, rather than having less worry about it, you should have more interest in it to be able to get it right. James, I'm really glad we did this as an episode. So let's try and conclude and wrap things up a little bit. So one, what is the correct way to use carbs? Maybe give me a few one-liners here. Well, the correct way to use carbohydrates is, is to use them to fuel those workouts that are high intensity and long duration. And I want to pick up as well on the different sports because we very loosely touched upon it and we obviously talked about endurance sports and cycling. But what about using this and translate it to different sports and to everyday exercise? Yeah, no, that's a great point, Charlie. You're right. We've talked a lot about extreme endurance events today. And of course, those males and female athletes that participate in those events are definitely towards the upper ceiling of carbohydrate intake. But the recreational athletes, of course, don't need as much. Um, People engaged in team sports like football or hockey or so on, they certainly don't need as much. So it's really about coming back to that concept of, of scaling it to the level of activity that you need to scale it to. And I think Louise mentioned the phrase that I've published before around fuel for the work required. A lot of the sports scientists listening are, are probably fed up of me preaching that message. But maybe to the, to the lay audience that haven't heard of that, if, if you want to summarize up this episode, I guess that's how you could do it. It is fueling for the work required. Mm, and I don't think we really do that. I, I certainly don't think I do. And the final point is on the high fat and the high carb thing, because I remember you saying to me, I mean, we, we talk a lot about stuff, don't we, in between episodes and discuss things. And you said to me, you know, look, you know, you could do a certain amount on high fat, but it's, you, you can't get that last kick. You're not going to win the race. You're not going to go that bit further. You're not going to go any faster if you don't have the carbohydrates. So maybe you could sum that up for us as well. Yeah, absolutely, Charlie. I mean, the reality is, is even the most leanest of athletes have enough fat already stored on their body to perform exercise for days, hours and days of exercise. But like we mentioned before with Louise, fat is really a fuel for those gears one to three, carbohydrates, the the fuel for those gears to four to six. So in any sporting event that you might be doing this weekend or any time you want to go fast or sprint or perform at high intensity, Always remember what's happening inside your muscle at that time. That is when carbohydrate is being used as a fuel. And if you don't have any carbohydrate available, then you can't perform that high intensity activity. And hopefully that's what our listeners would really take away from from this episode. A lot of love for carbohydrates here, James. Definitely is in my house. (laughs) Thanks, James. I think we should maybe leave it there. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, make sure you leave a review. We'd love to have your feedback. Until the next episode drops, check out Science in Sport across social media with the handle at Science in Sport and we'll see you soon.